Well, howdy, neighbors. How's everyone today? Good. I think we'll, uh, we'll have you out of here if you're not planning to stay for lunch, but, um, you know, we sure hope you are. Yeah. So two weeks ago, before I left for vacation, Peter preached uh, on how the church changes the world. Today, I want to dig a little bit deeper into how you and I change the world, because that word church, you know, can have a capital C or a lowercase c. It's made up of us, individual people, who live our lives out day by day. Um, I'm a little bit embarrassed to admit that the book of Acts has historically been one of my least favorite books in the Bible. And the reason for that is mainly because we teach it like it's a textbook on church. And I don't think it's a textbook. And it really just kind of gets under my skin as, it's, as we teach through it. But um, it'll come as no surprise to most of you who know me this morning that we're going to take an unconventional look at the, the stories that we're going to look at today. Um, we're going to look at stories that were written commonly, well, these are written by Luke. It was commonly accepted that Luke wrote the book of Acts as well, and I don't think he was writing it so we could study it and figure out how to make 10,000 denominations out of it. Um, but the, it's largely accepted that he wrote the book of Acts, and then we know, obviously, or we believe that he wrote his gospel of Luke. We're going to spend some time in the gospel of Luke today and look at a couple really fairly well-known stories from that gospel. Um, we're going to look at the parable of the Good Samaritan, and uh, then we'll take a look at a couple of folks named Martha and Mary. Who remembers Mr. Rogers? I think he's pretty memorable, right? Um, yeah. And, you know, Mr. Rogers was, he just had a really important role in my childhood that I never realized until I was older and able to appreciate it. Able to appreciate the, the warm welcome that you got every time that show came on and the wonderful closing that you got at the end of the show that was so affirming and so, uh, it, it really was one of the few voices in the world around me that just was very affirming, right? And reminding me that I am who I am and I'm the only one like me in the world. And that was good in some cases, bad in others. Um, good in most cases, probably. But uh, I just, I, I, I want to kind of take a moment to observe that, you know, how many of you, think that Mr. Rogers was a little strange, right? So you, a lot of people, right? That's a common belief. A little bit weird. A little bit weird. He was very, very kind. Um, that's weird in our world, right? It's not normal to be that kind. So um, that was, it was funny that when I googled Mr. Rogers to get some, some uh, lyrics from a song that he used to sing, that was one of the common questions. You know how Google will put, hey, you're looking this up. People ask these questions. One of those top five was, why did Mr. Rogers talk like that? I thought that was funny, but he was talking to children, right? He was, he was trying, he, intentionally trying to be overtly kind. And uh, it's just not very, it's not very appreciated in our world, I don't think. But let's hop into Luke. So Luke chapter 10, we see what is referred to generally as the parable of the good Samaritan. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, him being Jesus, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed on by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three, do you think, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he answered Jesus, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Let's have a little back and forth if you're up for it. I hope you're up for it. Um, Tell me what you know about this parable. What does convention tell us from this story that we should take from it or that maybe are important details in it? What do you guys know about this parable? Not all at once, though. Just one at a time. Be kind to strangers. Be kind to strangers. Yes, that's definitely, definitely a conventional pullout from this, right? Practical application point. What else? Don't be hard-hearted. Were you talking to me? No, you're adding that into, the, okay, yeah, yeah. Yes. Compassion is a normal human behavior. Nice, nice. That's good. What else? Anything else hit you from this story? What was that? Go out of your way for others. Nice. Oh, I meant to tell people online. If you're watching online and you want to submit a question or an observation, Glenn will shout it out to me so you can do that. But um, yeah, go out of your way for others. What about the, the, the people in, the, in this parable? What are we generally told about them? So you've got the priest, the Levite, well, you got the guy that was beat up, and then you've got the Samaritan. That you can be religious and think that you're holy and full of God and not act godly. Mm. That you can be religious and, I can't repeat, um, it was great though, uh, you can be religious and full of God and not act holy, right? That's what you said, yeah. Well, the person Right, right. Yeah, Ted said the, the person who was not of the right religion is the one who acted best here, right? The, uh, the person that was not expected to show mercy showed mercy in this case. That's very conventional view of this. Convention tells us that the priest was the highest religious leader, or he represented the highest religious leadership. The Levite was a lay associate of the priest, so a deacon or an elder, if you will. Um, And I think convention tells us don't be like them, right? 
Um, being neighborly means helping everyone. I liked the way uh, Courtney said it, is that you go out of your way for everyone is a better way to, to, to say that. But sometimes it's taught that, you know, being neighborly means you have to help everyone, right? If you're not helping everyone, you're a bad person, I think convention can tell us here. Two denarii, by the way, is generally accepted to be about two months worth of lodging for that person. So it's important to note that. It's a, that's a two months in a hotel is what he paid for. <laughs> and then he said, I'll come back and settle accounts later if he takes stuff from the minibar. <laughs> um, neighbor here, I've talked about before, so I'm not going to belabor that point today, but uh, it's the Greek word plesion, and it means near or neighboring. And it, I think, means the that when somebody comes into your circle, they become your neighbor. When Jesus uses it, I think he's pretty clear about that. So let's take an unconventional look. And uh, it'll start with that word, right? Near or neighboring. So I think a lot of times we get told there's a good person, bad person fallacy here that, that I don't, I'm not a big fan of. That the bad people didn't help and the good person helped and you're a bad person if you don't help everyone you come into contact with and you're a good person if you do. We even call it the good neighbor. Good neighbor is not used in this parable. It's just Jesus just asks which of these three do you think was a neighbor to this person? Not a good neighbor versus a bad neighbor. But we tag on the good Sam, right? The good, which implies that the religious people are bad here in this case. And um, I think convention sometimes pulls that out um, to use against people instead of... I don't think that Jesus tells a lot of these stories to be against people so much as to be shedding light on how he's for us. Um, we're all good people and bad people. That's really the bottom line. Um, sometimes you're great. Sometimes you're not. <laughs> and that's true for all of us, all of the time. I think this parable is less about what they did or did not do and more about what drove what they did. Very similar to when I talked last about the parable of the um, prodigal son, or the sheep and the goats is what it was. Less about what they did or did not do and more about what's fueling their decisions toward what they're doing. Uh, the, the term that Jesus used when he says he, the Samaritan saw the man and he had compassion, that compassion, that word there is a Greek word that I can't pronounce and won't even try. And it means to be moved in the inward parts. It's a gut feeling to feel compassion. You know, I'm sure you've all experienced that moment when you have that gut feeling that just tells you something. It, and that gut feeling, I think, oftentimes is how the Holy Spirit works in our lives. Gives us that prompting, that moving in our guts, in our inward parts, to do something. It's a drive that's extremely difficult to discern in another person, right? It's hard enough to discern in yourself. You're like, is that the pizza I ate last night that I let sit out? Or 
You know, what is that? But I can't look at Ted and say, I think he's feeling an inward moving of his guts right now. Like, I think he's really... <laughs> I might know if it goes the wrong way, but I don't know if you're just sitting there experiencing it. <laughs> um, so I just, I, I wanted to just make those couple observations. Um, we'll, let's look at the encounter with the lawyer. So these are verses 25 through 29, and then again at the end, 26 through, or 36 through 37. So that was the parable itself that Jesus told. Now I want to take a quick unconventional look at the lawyer who's, who's testing him, right? So actually, what do you guys know about that part of the story? The lawyer that's testing him. What are we, what does convention tell us about this guy? He's insincere. He's insincere? Yes. What else? What is he? He's a bad word in our, in our big church world. He's a, starts with a P, but sounds like an F. Might be a Pharisee, right? So convention says that an expert in the law of Moses, which is probably synonymous with a scribe, most likely affiliated or belonging to the party of the Pharisees. Dun, dun, dun. Um, why is he trying to justify himself according to convention? Do you guys know what is generally taught as to why this man is trying to justify himself? Who's he trying to justify himself to? Generally, most commentators will lead you to believe that he's trying to show himself to be righteous and acceptable before God, to God, right? But I think, to me, it seems a little bit obvious that this man has been following Jesus for a while. He even uses Jesus' own answer to the question that he asked. That's not really, it is in Scripture, but it's not in Scripture exactly the way that he repeats it back to him. Jesus has a unique kind of way of saying, follow the, what is the law? It's all summed up in two statements. Follow the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, energy, whatever. Um, and love your neighbor as yourself. And that's the exact answer this man gives Jesus. The exact answer that he knows he's heard him use before. And uh, he seems to be trying to use it against him, I think. Justify himself to me seems something more related to the people around him. His status, his importance, right? I'm part of the religious authority here. Let me puff myself up a little bit. Thelo is the word justify, and it's to desire, or it means to wish or to will. And so I think it's about his will, him willing his own will. Now I'm going to start sounding like Peter. Um, <laughs> it's about him willing his own will, which is willing his Mises, right? Probably in the form of a Weezus, like Peter talked about last time he spoke. Um, because I'm part of Weezus who know all about Jesus, so listen to my Mises as I espouse what Weezus believe, right? Um, instead of justify himself, I think maybe the translators could have done some justice, maybe putting justify his self, right? It's interesting that the scribe replies with a different word for mercy when he's repeating back, when Jesus asks him, who do you think was 
a neighbor to this man. He says, I think it was the one that showed him mercy. He doesn't use the same word for compassion that was used before. He doesn't use the word for the moving of the inward parts. But he uses the word that's commonly used for mercy and compassion that God has towards sinners. And so he actually makes Jesus' point for him, I think, by choosing that word. But we don't often hear that in commentaries. I find that interesting. Well, let's move on. Um, Let's go to an evening with Martha and Mary. This follows the encounter that just happened in the story of Luke at verse 38. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. All right. What do you know about this story? What is commonly told about this story? Anything that comes to mind. Anything about Mary, anything about Martha, anything about the details of what's going on. Don't be a busybody. Don't be a busybody. Don't be like Martha. Don't be like Martha. Well, that one's definitely there. What else? Anything else stand out? No? All right. Well, I really wanted to spend some time on this story because it came up in book club. And uh, I, really, I really heard the convention coming out, the don't be like Martha, right? But then the response in book club was, well, we were reading Siddhartha, right? And so there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of monks going out in the wilderness with their alms bowls, right? So they go out with their alms bowls and they get fed by the people that fill their alms bowls. And the comment was fantastic. It was, well, if everybody's out in the wilderness with alms bowls, nobody's going to eat, right? Who, who is, someone has to make the food or bring the money to make the contribution for people to be out in the wilderness walking around with their alms bowls. And I thought it was a fantastic observation. There's an either-or mentality that comes through this story as well. You're either like Martha or you're like Mary. You're either a good person or you're a bad person almost. Um, you... You're a doer or you're a giver. Maybe those are both good. I don't know. But there's still, you can't be both, right? You're either a doer or a giver. And then there's controversy over the one thing that Mary's focused on. And I'm not going to get into that. But I'll let the scholars argue about it till they can't talk anymore. But there's a lot of disagreement about what that might mean. Um, I'll take an unconventional look. Martha's phrasing is very interesting to me. This does not come up in any of the commentaries that I read or any of the study Bibles, and I think it's really strange that it's totally not even addressed. Martha's phrasing is very interesting to me. She says, God, Lord, don't you even care? 
that she's left me to do all this work? Don't you even care? And Jesus, I think, seems to say back to her, Martha, Martha, it looks like you're starting to be driven by the wrong things. And he doesn't chastise her for that or reprimand her for that, but he just points to it lightly. Martha, Martha, you're worried about a lot of things here, okay? You're worried about a lot of details. There's only one you really need to be worried about. I think it, that Martha seems to be starting to look like what she's believing, right? In working in the kitchen there, Mary's done, she's left, she's left doing the dishes, and she starts with the grumbling, right? The, hmm, I want to be in there. You know, I, if we all would just pitch in here, I could be in there. And uh, she's, I think, starting to look like what she believes, and she comes and expresses that concern. And Jesus doesn't, doesn't throw it back in her face, Um, Mary has chosen the good portion or the good part is what Jesus says. I think it seems to imply that she's chosen to be driven by the good part or the good portion. Well, let's tie the two stories together here. It's strange that we commonly accept that Jesus is teaching us how to judge others and how to justify ourselves in these stories. To me, that is strange. Don't be like the religious leaders. Don't be like Martha. Self-justification, this willing of ourself, is, it's really reached pandemic levels. I don't think masks will help with it. If they did, I'd be a full advocate. Um, self-justification is not just reserved for the religious leaders. It's not reserved just for the authorities. We're all guilty of it. It seems to extend to each one of us, and we all struggle with it constantly. Judging someone else to justify ourselves, it's ugly. And the opposite of that is reserving judgment and reserving self-justification. Those two things are tied together. Loving your neighbor as yourself, in other words. Being able to extend the same mercy and compassion that you expect for yourself to other people. I don't think that living out our faith is about helping every person that you encounter. That doesn't make you a good person versus a bad person. You could help them for bad reasons. You could help them do something that's not good for them. Jesus clearly places submission to God above love of your neighbor. And I think this is because God loves our neighbor right through us, in spite of us. When we're surrendered to him in the moment, we're a vessel of his goodness in our world. We advance the kingdom of God right in our space-time. There's an important distinction to be made here between government and individuals that, you know, it's probably not going to be the most popular part of my talk, but we we probably disagree, maybe drastically on some of this, but I believe that involvement in politics is important. I don't think you have to surrender involvement in politics if you're a person of faith. I understand the drive of people who feel called to legislate morality 
I understand the drive of people who feel called to legislate care. But I wholeheartedly reject the idea that our faith is designed to be legislated, while also understanding that it will and should inform those areas of our life. It's all very complicated and nuanced, but we need to get back to a place as a society of civil discourse about that. Regardless of who you feel is responsible for taking care of others, each one of us is called to respond to the Spirit of God inside of us. This is how the church changes the world, not through legalism, dogma, or legislation. You change the world, Steve, every day that you're alive. You change the world, Bill, Lynn, every day that you're alive. So what's your good portion? What's your good part? What is, as Peter would say, your spiritual act of worship? Right here, right now, in the moment, the constantly changing now. Well, you can listen for those gut feelings. I think that's a good place to start. Lily told me a story, my daughter, um, about a time she was prompted to send an encouraging text to someone. It was a friend, but they weren't like super close. So it was going to be really weird for her to just send this note of encouragement. But she felt very strongly that she was supposed to do it. So she started noticing all of the really convenient excuses not to do it. I don't have her number, so I can't text her directly. So I just, I don't think I'm going to do it. Well, then she realized she could reach out on social media and do it. And so there was a series of easy outs for her. And she went ahead and did it. And it was great, and it felt great. She got a great response. Um, The person was encouraged. It was wonderful. But then she was immediately tempted, as we all so many times are, to turn that into a formula. And she thought, "I, I should do this two or three times a week to random people, right? Because it would just be an awesome encouragement to them. And so she started down the road of Outside of the gut feeling, right? I, the gut feeling was good. I did it. I was, I was uncomfortable. I felt, it felt so good. Now I think I'm going to turn it into a formula. And now I'm going to do it on a regular basis, right? And that is, I don't think, what we're called to. I think the gut feelings are important. They prompt you. So I'm not giving a pass to the priest and the Levite. But I am making an observation that maybe... Maybe the person that responded was the one who was feeling like they should respond. Maybe his connection, the Samaritan's connection with God was strong enough in that moment that God flowed through him on the road to that Samaritan, right? And that's what we're called to. We're called to be our best you. You're called to be your best you. Serve without expectation or entitlement. Give without expectation or entitlement. Focus less on external voices. Pay attention to your gut. Ask God to speak up. And don't sweat it when he doesn't. You, you simply can't help everyone you encounter. You've got to do the best you can to transfer the grace and mercy that you expect for yourself to others. I think that is a picture of loving your neighbor as yourself. Stop thinking that you have to solve all the world's problems. Start or keep making a difference wherever you are while you're there in that moment with the people who are surrounding you in that moment. If we can help you connect with opportunities, we're happy to do that. 
There's a deacon ministry available. If anyone's interested, you can email me today and I'll make sure that you're looped into that ministry. Our deacons take care of those in need in our body. If you're moving or going to, or if you're in the hospital and need a hospital visitation, if you need help with finances or something along those lines, we have a team of people dedicated to that. And we're always looking for people that would be willing to be tapped if someone's moving to say, hey, would you be available at this time to do that? I'd love to keep a list of people who do that. Sunday morning volunteers are always in need. Um, whether it's serving communion or helping with the coffee and the, or lunch set up and lunch tear down and doing dishes. Um, it's, everyone here does a great job jumping in and I'm so thankful for that. But if you ever want to make it official and know that we have us know that we have someone there that'll do it that day, then you can always reach out via email to John or myself. Um, plant watering. Jennifer runs a whole team of folks that keep these beautiful plants watered in the building, and she can always use help with that throughout the week, recycling, gathering up trash and recycling, sorting it a little bit if it's needed after lunches are things that we're always in need of. So you can email me or you can email John if you're interested in helping with something like that. Um, but I want you to think of this as a symphony versus a competition, what we're doing here, what we're called to. Each part is important in a symphony, but you're only responsible to know your part. You don't have to know all the other parts. How others are playing their parts is certainly going to affect the music, but that's not in your purview. As long as you're bringing your best part and everybody is committed to that, then it's going to sound pretty good. So focus on playing your part well, with a healthy drive, a healthy will, rather than shooting yourself, as Peter would say, or shooting others. Resist the urge to protect, project your calling onto those around you, too. That's hard for us to do sometimes. We feel, well, God called me to do this, so must want you to do it, too. And it might be the case. Might not be, too. But my encouragement to you is just to surrender to God and let him fill you to help you to play your part the best that you can. And then together, when we do that collectively, then the big church changes the world. But you do it individually in your life with the individuals around you on a daily basis, on an hour-by-hour -hour basis, minute-by-minute basis. So on the night that he was betrayed by his neighbors, Jesus took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you, freely given to you. And in the same way, he took the cup, saying, this is the new covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink, all of you, and do it in remembrance of me. He demonstrated his love for everyone. He didn't just talk about it. And he was about to provide a very vivid example. At the sanctuary, we invite all to the table. You can come if you want. You don't have to. Take a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup. The bread is the body of Christ, broken for all of us. 
the wine representative of his blood shed for all of us. You dip it in the wine or the juice. Juice is in the blue cups, wine's in the dark cups, and uh, you ingest God as a reminder of his desire to be with you. Amen. Well, Luke was commonly accepted to be a doctor, and doctors practice, right? They practice on you. (laughs) And that's what we do. We practice our faith on each other and on the other people in the world around us. And uh, I think that Jesus looks at everyone in these two parables, but important, more importantly, or more specifically, Martha and Mary, too, and says, you know, you make each day a special day. Does anyone know how you do that? Anyone remember hearing that before? You make each day a special day by just your being you. There's no one else in the whole world like you. And I think that's what he's, he's telling us all. So take a look around you. Look at the people around you, the things that are going on around you, and ask yourself, is this the world you want? Because you're making it every day that you're alive. Are you advancing the kingdom of God? Or are you advancing the kingdom of Brett or Ted or Steve or Kareen or... Rick, anyone. (laughs) Um, Is this the world you want? Because you change the world every day of your life. By way of benediction, if you're moved by this message enough to sit and talk about it longer, I would encourage you to use that time that you would have spent talking about it, going out to lunch with someone or going on a walk with somebody. I want you to make it a point this week to do that. Believe the gospel By all means, in Jesus' name, believe the gospel. But more importantly, let that belief drive you to be the gospel this week. Amen?